I'm Imogen Ray Smith. I'm David Bank. And I'm Brian Walsh. And this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. On today's show, jobs. No, not the late Apple founder, Steve, but rather the process whereby people exchange their time and labor to earn a wage. Many impact investors tout their job creation numbers. For ESG, or environmental, social, and governance investors, the S in ESG often relates to job and labor practices. But is merely counting jobs enough? A new bar for impact has become quality jobs. David, what are quality jobs, and why have they become the forefront of the impact conversation? Well, Brian, you know, a lot of investors, you know, a lot of economic types would say that all investments create jobs or they would tout, you know, job creation. That's not really an impact investment thesis. That's sort of, you know, what investment is supposed to do. So impact investors said, hey, that's not really enough. So unemployment rate is near record lows. The stock market's soaring. Private equity performance is high. But, you know, many people are working two jobs. The minimum wage has not kept up. You know, just creating jobs does not really change, you know, the the economic, I don't know, equity in in society. So now the the theory goes, you got to have jobs that have benefits, that have promotion tracks, that have um, uh, uh, employee participation in all sorts of ways. And um, we could talk about what that really means, but that basically you got to create good jobs. It's not just, you know, total job numbers. It's actually has to do with the quality of the jobs and actually changing the, you know, the, the work, the living conditions, the working conditions of, of people in the companies that investors are investing in. So Imogen, can good and sustainable jobs also generate good and sustainable investment returns? Absolutely. Um, but within... A, a limited framework, particularly when it comes to impact investing, right? So if you think about what does impact investing do, a lot of impact investing, particularly on the private market side, is extending credit to either, you know, entrepreneurs in developing market countries in the form of often microfinance, or it's extending credit to, you know, entrepreneurs in, you know, com- communities that is creating jobs. And that is, you know, a very obvious, straightforward impact investment strategy. Here's something like investing in B Corps, right? The B Corp movement has, as part of its definition, you're creating beneficial corporations. That means you care about things like your workers. There's an, you know, you as an impact investor can have a strategy around investing in companies that do this. And, you know, if you do a good job, that can be a profitable approach. The problem becomes really more on the sort of ESG and the public market side when we're talking about larger companies and we're talking about this bigger question of labor and job creation. Then it becomes much more of a challenge. And, you know, I shockingly, I disagree with David. Um, you that didn't what? take long. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you put your foot in it right away, right? <laughs> when you said that, you know, that that all investing by definition creates jobs. No, I said I said I said many investors claim to create jobs, and impact investors are trying to differentiate themselves some sort of run of the mill jobs with this notion of quality jobs. That's the only distinction and, I was making. And so, you know, it's very clear that a lot of investing isn't about job creation; it's about job destruction, right? That's a long time. For a long time, that's been the criticism of private equity that you go in. For the record, you know, you I a- for the record, I completely agree with you. <laughs> See, you always do. This, this is how it works. <laughs> um, so 
see it. You go in, you buy a you know a steel mill somewhere, you lay off half the workers, increase the efficiency of the steel steel, steel mill, and take the thing public again, right? That is that is the cycle. Now, what you're seeing with, for example, private equity companies coming into the impact space is you know, some of those same companies which have, have thrived off this model for years saying, oh, no, 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 we also want to create this model where we do well by doing good, where we're going to care about the qualities of jobs we create. We're going to find these companies where we can just take them to the next level and do well. And some of that is true, right? And sometimes you are going to have companies where you can improve, you know, employee morale and things can get better. But, you know, I think the real danger here is, you know, are we creating a panacea of, you know, a couple of fuzzy feel-good stories, a couple of investments that make people feel great, but we're not really dealing with the underlying causes and the underlying problems. And to sort of what David was alluding to earlier, you know, you used to have companies that, that had good working conditions, right? Like we spent the last three decades dismantling stuff like, you know, defined benefit pension plans. Like, like, you know, employee benefits, all of that. You know, now we're at the point where, you, you know, you have the gig economy where, you know, you're a taxi driver, you don't even have insurance, right? We have systematically dismantled that. And the impact investing movement alone isn't going to fix that. And to a certain extent can be perceived as undermining it, especially when, you know, impact itself is in some ways an expression of the have and have not economy. So I think, Imogen, you raise a good point. I think another uh, observation is that only focusing on the number of jobs or the quality jobs created uh, without looking at the totality of that investment and all the dimensions that that uh, investment might have impact might lead to some unintended consequences. I, I'm reminded of a, a noted impact investing organization uh, several years ago who said as their primary focus was to uh, leverage their capital to invest in good quality jobs. And they looked at their portfolio and and they really tried to uh, over-index for uh, companies that outperformed on benchmarks around quality jobs. And then when they looked at their portfolio, they realized that they were heavily uh, invested in private prisons. Uh, it just so happened that these private prisons treated their workers well and uh, paid good benefits and had good uh, living wages. But of course, this, this organization, which is a philanthropic organization, was shocked to realize that with their sole or solo focus just on jobs, they maybe neglected some other values that they that they cared about. And so then they had to take a step back and, and look more comprehensively about the full dimensions of impact uh, that their investments have. So David, what do you think is the role for looking at jobs uh, at the exclusion of other dimensions of a of an enterprise's impact. Well, you may be surprised, Brian, that I'm going to sort of take that and and, and answer a different question, <laughs> um, because um, I think I think what we're getting at here is that there's a deep, you know. So yes, as Imogen says, an individual company can have a arguably better performance with a better worker policies, right? So there's examples of, you know, low wage fast food places or, or, or big box stores like Walmart, you know, f finding that if they pay workers more, they can get have better employee morale and that translates better customer service that may translate to higher revenues. Th those kind of examples are fairly well documented. There's a whole Good Jobs Institute at MIT that has a raft of those kind of examples. I think what Imogen's getting at, which I totally agree with, is that there's something even at a level higher, like can worker improvement in worker livelihoods and assets and wealth 
actually be become part of the broad economy as opposed to sort of just depend on the kind of, I don't know, noblesse oblige or largesse of some ruling class. I mean, if you want to put it in that regard. And, the, and I don't know the answer to that, but I'm saying that's at the core of all of these things that are popping up now about sort of the, the rise of stakeholder capitalism or, or conscious capitalism or sustainable capitalism. You know, this is the critique that everybody seems to be making about, you know, does capitalism work? Is can it actually deliver for the people who do the work? And that, I think, is a is a much more fundamental question that is definitely, you know, not been answered. One, one thing I like just to maybe frame it a little bit is labor, as, as Imogen said, is Jeff generally considered on the balance sheet a liability. Labor costs are a liability. There's a whole other school that says labor should be an asset, right? That in fact your entire business is based on the value and the and the and the performance and the um, sort of training and expertise and capacity and, and quality of your talent of your workers, and so treat it like an asset, just like you do your you know machines, um, and uh, and optimize for the value of that asset. So I think if you could get to that flip, then we'd be really talking about some systemic transformation. So does that does that. Uh... That focus of making labor not a cost but an asset, uh, is that true for every type of company? That, that's almost an accounting kind of truism. That doesn't mean necessarily that's how how um, managers totally, you know, think about it in their private, you know, heart of hearts. But it's 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 the way that the the way that it generally appears on their balance sheets. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Right. I mean, this is like a real sort of blue collar, white collar divide, right? I mean people very much see sort of the, the intelligence workforce as being something that they want and that, you know, they're desperate. They look at tech companies, right? Like that they're desperate to bring in and sort of make people happy, but they they don't value or respect the sort of the, the labor workforce. And so that, you know, how do you recognize that we need we need all types of workers and we need to create quality pathways to success and equity for all of these different types of workers and that's where i think you know to this idea you know i think there's something interesting about saying how can we come up with economic models that are more equitable and have workers profiting from the success and prosperity of the companies i think one of the issues that's happened here is again over the sort of past four decades you've seen the ascent of you know, shareholders at the cost of everything else. The returning value to shareholders is the number one and in fact the only obligation of companies. And so, you know, I as a shareholder would rather you just gave the money to me than giving it back to the workers. And that dynamic I think has been very destructive to the labor movement, very destructive to you know, equity for workers. And, you know, increasingly there's a body of thought that says it's actually very disruptive to the long-term health and success of companies and to the economy. That, I think, is the shift that has to percolate its way up. And I think the examples you gave are exactly right. I mean, we're, and it's important to get this right. For example, the projections of the job losses from automation, whether it's, you know, truck drivers or, 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 or what have you, are, are staggering, right? So the thought is somehow that the robots and automation and AI is going to remove all the labor out of the economy. And that, from the point of view, as you said, of, of sort of shareholder primacy, would be a good thing. You'd be eliminating labor costs and you'd be, you know, saving companies a bunch of money. On the other hand, the companies that are, you know, companies will tell you right now, their problem is not somehow 
laying off workers. The problem is finding talented and skilled workers, even truck drivers, right? So just when truck driving jobs are supposed to go away, the trucking companies are desperate to find good truck drivers. And, you know, growers out in here in California are desperate to find people to pick crops, which, you know, used to be, um, you know, the lowest kind of job there was. And now you can't find people to, to pick the crops. So the problem right now is not labor surplus. The problem right now is labor shortage in key areas. And that means train and nurture and, 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 and treat your workers right so you can have some. But this also goes to the, the, the point that you can't see labor in a vacuum, right? One of the reasons that there is a shortage of labor in certain key areas, such as, you know, the North Fork of Long Island or Hawaii or certain parts of California, say, is because you can't have that. You don't have the housing. Right. If you can't house workers, then you can't get the workers to pick the crops. Right. So there's a whole and not to mention, you can't even you know, get them to be you know, school teachers or firefighters. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so so there's a whole and, you know, not to mention immigration reform. Right. Which which is certainly a conversation we should have on a different day. I was, I was waiting when someone was going to mention immigration <laughs> in the labor force. <laughs> no, it's you know, it's it's near and dear to my heart right now. But also <laughs> <laughs> also like. A colossal issue and it's it's a parallel and related issue and incredibly important and if we don't think about all of these questions together in addition to you know not just thinking about this in terms of sort of a developed economy context but thinking about it in terms of the global supply chain then you know we're often sort of missing the wood for the trees that said you know you also it's easy to get overwhelmed and say, well, now this com problem is so complex that I'm just going to throw up my hands and do nothing about it. I think one of the interesting um, threads here is, you know, there's obviously a need for raising the minimum wage and that, that kind of thing, right? That makes a lot of sense, for, you know, just for sort of catching up to where we were kind of thing. But what would the ideas be that would actually take us to um, a much more equitable system at large, and I argue, I would argue, a pro-growth economy where you know people have more money in their pockets and more money to spend, and they can buy houses and they can buy um, uh, education for their kids and they can buy things. I mean, you could you could argue that there's a pro-growth income redistribution strategy, and what would get us there? And I think it's not only wages. I mean, wages and benefits are obviously the bedrock, but I think it's also like cutting more stakeholders into you know equity ownership of the companies, even equity ownership of the of the investment funds the the banks the the funds themselves um uh you think I, there's anything there imogen and brian i i think you're right I, I think you're getting at something but i also obviously think you're being overly idealistic um in that i think that yeah the the so the, one of the fundamental problems that we have in the current economy is, you know, what we talk about all the time, which is this have and have not economy. The sort of 1% of the country owns 90% of the wealth, right? And that, you know, this is, this is something that impact investing struggles with a lot because by definition, it is about the asset owners doing the investing, be that, you know, pension plans, sovereign wealth funds, endowments, foundations, or high net worth individuals, right? So yes, if you could get a better distribution of equity that would solve some of these problems however wishing ain't going to make it so right and that transformation is going to be incredibly difficult and 
again, it overlooks stuff like the fact that we have a ginormous tax on poor people, right? That it's poor people who bear the burden of healthcare. It's poor people who bear the burden of being poor, you know, stuff like payday lending, right? And so this, and by the way, that is also a massive trade in private equity to profit from that sort of poverty tax. And so those type of issues, I think, are more front and center and more urgently need to be addressed than what is going to be a longer term project of greater economic inclusion. I, I agree with that. But I, just to build on David's point, too, uh, uh, Delilah Varthenberg, who has this new initiative out called uh, Pre-Distribution Initiative, uh, is trying to take a look at the compensation model of private equity and venture capital funds themselves that typically charge a 2% management fee and two percent or 20% of the profits uh, that they earn for uh, the investments that they make. So that's 2 and 20 model. Uh, and she says that that means that no matter how they treat the workers of their portfolio companies, uh, that they are growing the fund managers themselves, the compensation uh, model themselves itself is uh, rewarding those that already have means, uh, ensuring that the cycle of uh, the wealthy staying wealthy and earning more value than workers uh, is increasing. And so instead of waiting till after that cycle of value creation has concluded and trying to tax those fund managers more or trying to then redistribute after the money has been already earned and taxed by the government to pre-distribute and to create new incentive models for fund managers so that they are able to share in the value that is created by the workers and the companies in which they invest so that those workers share in that value creation beyond just better wages or better work environments, but actually sharing in the financial upside of the value that they are contributing uh, to those companies. So that's exactly what I'm talking about, Brian, which is if we're talking about a, you know, a sort of wealth creation mechanisms, let's cut more people into the wealth creation mechanisms that, that wealthy people have had access to. Um, you know, there's got to be appropriate risk protections as well, because, you know, you know, it's a different thing to lose money if you're poor than if you're rich. But um, but the notion that somehow workers are part of the success of that venture and therefore and, and therefore the success of that fund and therefore should participate in the upside, I think is something that has to get taken to, into account. I don't see why that's not sort of plainly obvious. We've talked about it in the opportunity zone context. Um, you know, we've talked about opportunity zones a lot as a way to drive capital into low-income communities. But why not let the low-income communities, current residents, current small business owners, et cetera, you know, participate as those funds, those opportunity funds start to pay off, not just you know, being invested by the funds, but actually being in the funds. Right. Having the community participate in the upside, not just be the uh, the playground for outside investors to come in and and make their tax advantaged investments. Indeed, indeed, I think we might have danced over a little bit too too easily the the first notion. I mean, there's a there's another statistic out there that says something like you know disengaged workers. You were talking about you know cogs in the machine. Disengaged workers, you know, are like seventy percent of workers feel like they're only thirty percent feel like they're engaged. Seventy percent don't feel like they're engaged at work, and that that's five or six hundred billion dollars a year in lost productivity. I think that was a Gallup survey. And so, you know, you have just this in incredible kind of untapped or unused talent, you know, from people who already have jobs and who just want to kind of get 
to be more, you know, engaged, participate, get more job satisfaction, make the, you know, company better, you know, they would do that if there was a sort of incentive structure to 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 help them uh, uh, benefit from that. Just like you know, just like we say, investors would do that if with the right the right incentive structure. So I'm just saying, let's let's get the um, economy uh, pointed in the right direction. Especially as this, as we said, this automation wave is coming through. You could you could really use that as a way to drive you know better jobs. I, I'm not I'm all for universal basic income as far as it goes. I just don't think it goes very far. I just want I just want people to have um good quality jobs where they're engaged and they get some benefit from from the value they create um and is that so much to ask is that too much to ask pretty sure elizabeth warren has a plan for this (laughs) (laughs) well it does it does just to get back to one of our other you know favorite topics it does provide a much more popular underpinning for this whole impact investing proposition, which, as you said, Imogen, could risk very much getting pigeonholed as an elite affectation of, you know, rich people, you know, trying to feel good about themselves. And um, I think the proof in the pudding is whether, you know, poor people actually get get a better deal. Or poor people become rich people. Yeah. I think it's also how many how many poor people, right? Like, I think one of the dangers, and you could just say this is a virtue of size, but one of the dangers that impact investing has is that it is successful at targeting a very small group, but it is really tar- tokenism, and that that it that it isn't capable of reach addressing the broader problem. And again, in a sense, that's fine. You can't solve everything, but if if impact becomes the panacea, because oh look we've helped a couple of poor people so that's great rather than addressing you know the, the deeper and broader social problems that we've been trying to tackle today there are examples where this can work and it can be really effective um and but i worry that the sort of the, the case studies you know dis- detract from what's happening in the in the macro economy and the the broader changes that need to happen to to change the sort of momentum of where things are going i i, I totally agree <laughs> All right, and uncharacteristically uncharacteristically well i think that's a good place to leave it i want to uh, end with one final note here which is quoting from the united nations uh sustainable development goal goal number eight decent work and economic growth uh the full goal number eight is to promote sustained inclusive and sustainable economic growth full and productive employment and decent work for all. And we say amen. Amen. And this was a decent work for all of us uh, on the show today. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much, Imogen. Thank you. And thank you, David. Thanks to both of you. And that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. Find us at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. If you like the show, please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people discover us. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company Liquinet. On behalf of Imogen Rose Smith and David Bank, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in some sense of the word next time. <laughs>